Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, a uh, major housekeeping seems to be in order, but it is big enough that I think I will do it separately. So this housekeeping will be brief. I just want to say a few things about the app. We are finally releasing the groups feature. I know I promised that a few weeks back. That's rolling out this week with the new update. and. We'll go kind of week by week with progressively larger cohorts of the subscribers. So if you don't get it immediately, that's what's happening. You will eventually get it. We just don't want to break anything. So anyway, groups are coming. And in lieu of housekeeping, I wanted to present a lesson that was recently released on the app. And this lesson is titled Space, Time, and Attention. So enjoy that, and then I'll be back with today's guest. I'd like you to consider what is real in this moment. That is, what actually exists, and what of the things that exist actually matter, and what makes things matter. We tend to think of reality in terms of space and of things in space. We think of people and places that matter to us. We accumulate possessions, things in drawers and closets that we care about or once cared about. We move from room to room in our homes into spaces that we maintain for different purposes. So the sense of what is there for us in each moment is bound up with this sense of space. And we have digital lives that take place in virtual spaces. And we can now see distant places on Earth in real time without having to travel. We can communicate with people who are elsewhere. But they're real to us by reference to their being in space. And if you believe that God exists, well, then the question becomes, where? The reality of anything seems to entail its existence in space. And it's because abstract quantities like numbers violate this principle that their existence becomes so hard to think about. In what sense does the number seven exist? That becomes philosophically interesting and even inscrutable because existence is so bound up with our sense of space. And time hovers over all of this like a ghost. In one sense, it's another abstraction based on the reality of change. All things that exist seem to change, and one thing causes or cancels another. It's based on these changes that we form a picture of time. Now, we can get closer to the truth by importing time into our thinking about things. We can think in terms of processes rather than things. We can turn nouns into verbs. You as a person are not really a thing. You're a process. You're a stream of actions and experiences. And your moment-to-moment engagement with the world of things and ideas changes you. You acquire new skills and opinions and desires and concerns. You're not precisely who you were yesterday. And you don't exactly know who you'll be tomorrow. And look at what matters to you. Your relationships. A relationship isn't a thing. It's built upon experiences with another person. And a career isn't a thing. And your health 
isn't a thing. Everything you experience is made of moments in time. But the real significance of time is not what happens on the calendar or on the clock, but in our minds. The true source of profundity is attention. That is the cash value of time. We all know what it's like to guard our time, but then to squander it by not paying attention to that which would have made the time we guarded valuable. It's always amusing to see a group of people who've decided to be together for whatever reason. Perhaps they're having lunch in a restaurant, but most or even all of them are buried in their phones. The real coincidence of space and time that is meaningful is attention. Think of some possession or place that you love, some quantity of space that gives you pleasure. Perhaps it's a work of art you have on your wall, or a piece of jewelry, or a place in nature, a beach or a mountain. Perhaps there's a restaurant or bookstore that you'd be sad to know you would never see again. Let's say you maintain this connection to this object or place for the rest of your life. What is its real significance? How is it possible to grasp it and take pleasure in it? How can it matter to you? All of this is a play of attention. This object or place exists for you and matters to the degree that it captures your attention, precisely to that degree. You like to look at it or hold it or think about it. The real pleasure isn't in the object. It's in your mind. It's a matter of what it feels like to give this thing your attention. And this is where meditation reveals its real power. True profundity is to be found not in guarding space or even time. The real profundity is being able to use attention in a way that is truly rewarding. You're only as free as your attention is. If you're lost in thought, even in a holy place, on a holy day, or in formal meditation, or on your honeymoon, or at a child's birthday party, or at work, you might as well be anywhere, because for that moment you are well and truly lost. If, on the other hand, you're recognizing the nature of consciousness, it also doesn't matter where you are or what time it is, because the moment is profound. It's in this middle place where you're distracted with the objects and people and places that matter to you, where it really does seem to matter what you have and where you are. Your attention is bound up with what you're seeing and hearing and thinking in a way that plays upon your preferences and your hopes and your fears. Think of the moment when you notice that your new car is dented or the jacket you love has a ketchup stain on it or your checking account has less money in it than you expected. The team you were rooting for just won the championship, or you just finished a project that you've been working on for months, or happy hour just ended, but the waiter will still take your order, and those are the best tacos on earth. We mostly live in this place, with attention bound up with what we want and what we don't want, what we expect, what we're surprised to find, and then our minds continually wander into thoughts about the past and the future. And in our wandering, we lose awareness of the very things we want and have been busily gathering and guarding and may even have in hand. That best taco on earth hits your tongue and you taste it. 
sort of, and then your attention races away to something else in space or time, or merely within the space and time of your imagination. Think about what matters and how it's possible for something to matter. Many of us have thought about what we would grab from our homes in a fire. Just imagine it. Your family is safely on the street, and you have a chance to grab something. What would it be? Photos? A computer? Your father's watch? You can't fit much in your hands. In some sense, we're always in this situation. We're always deciding what to grasp. What matters? What is worth paying attention to in this moment? Because you can only pay attention to one thing at a time. And it's only meditation that gives you a choice about what to grasp and what to let go of. It's as though we continually wake up in the burning house of the present, only to find that we're holding and even struggling under the weight of some worthless object. That's what bickering with your spouse is like. That's what rumination is like. That's what most of our worrying is like. That's what comparing ourselves to others is like. That's what envy and regret are like. That's what pride is like. I mean, really? The Tate Gallery was on fire, and rather than rescue a Picasso or a Da Vinci, you risked your life to grab some chairs from the coffee shop? Without a meditation practice, you will just find yourself holding something, staggering under some burden again and again, reacting to something, brooding about something, fixating on something, helplessly, without a choice, without the possibility of choice. Meditation is nothing more or less than the art of choice. It's the art of paying attention to what really matters. Okay, so that is a lesson from the Waking Up course. And if you want more information about that, you can find it at wakingup.com. And uh, another thing that I'm now doing in the course, I've begun interviewing other meditation teachers and trying to get to the bottom of what they teach and why they teach it. These will be deep dives into the minutiae of consciousness and what can be gleaned about it from first-person methods, whether they be contemplative or psychedelic or philosophical or otherwise. And now for today's guest. Today I'm speaking with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin is a really great writer. She writes now mostly for The Atlantic, it seems, but she's been on staff at The New Yorker and The Wall Street Journal. She's won a National Magazine Award. She's also written for Time and O, oh, the Oprah Magazine, the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. She is a deeply irreverent and uh, clever social critic. She has two books, Girl Land and To Hell With All That. And it was great to finally get her on the podcast. I've been a fan of her work for many years, and we had not yet met. And the podcast provided an occasion to finally sit down and talk. And here we certainly do our best to make trouble for ourselves. We talk about the Me Too movement and feminism and immigration, affirmative action, the whole college admissions racket. 
We basically steer toward every third rail we can think of. Anyway, I had great fun in the conversation. And now, without further delay, I bring you Caitlin Flanagan. I'm here with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I'm a huge fan. I've been reading you for quite some time. And I mean, you, you seem to touch so many controversial issues, and you do it in a way that it seems, I mean, I, I can only imagine that some, some things blow back on you, and you may regret having touched a particular topic. But is there anything that you, any area you've gone into that you, you regret touching? Mm, never. No? It's funny. I talk to a lot of young women writers about this. It's almost become like a part of my day every day. There's a few of them I know well. And they're writing really interesting stuff, really important stuff. And they're having such a hard time with the blowback and the response. Mm. And I try to tell them what nobody told me in the beginning, which was it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. Not just from a standpoint of the largeness of a life, you know, that do you want to get to the end of the life where you didn't say what you thought? I don't think you do. But even in the immediate sense, it's not going to hurt your career that people are really angry. It's going to make your writing more noisy mm. and people are going to be driven to it. And then inevitably in that drive of people to your work, some of them are going to find that they really love your work and that's going to expand the reach. So I've certainly, well, the one that I got the most, it's interesting. I wrote a big, huge Atlantic cover story a long time ago like maybe 2006, where I... the nanny story? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... I, I remember handing that to my wife. <laughs> and I'm not even sure... I, I knew who you were as a writer, but I, I, I hadn't read much of your stuff. And I remember handing it to her like, this is, like, is going to detonate in your hands. It's just it's like, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I spun it one way or the other. It's just, let's just see what this does to your brain. But it was, yeah, I, I can imagine that was intense. So, so, so summarize what, what your position was there and, and maybe back up for a second and just give our listeners a sense of the types of topics you've tended to touch. And then let's go to the, the nanny story. I guess I would say I, well, I'm interested in politics always. And I'm interested, although I am a self-hating Democrat, I'm really interested in the endless hypocrisy of the left. I just think it's, it's just, I just try to have a, a, a a comical attitude toward it because it's just so extreme. But so I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in boys. I'm interested in girls. I'm interested in being a mother. I'm interested in just, I've always just followed the things that are kind of emanating from my own private life and mm -hmm. just kind of tried to put them. I love social history. So I love knowing why you do a certain thing that you just thought was coming completely from your own convictions and then you realize no there's actually a history to this and it was 20 or 30 years and this happened and that happened so they're kind of small kitchen table subjects but a few years ago is this too long am no, i going no, to no, no. a few yeah. years ago i went to uh, santa monica public library because they have great bound editions of old magazines instead of having to you know microfilm or whatever and they have all these back issues of time magazine and so i got a bunch from like i think the 1980s and i went through them and it was amazing how many of the stories they thought were the big stories they got it wrong, like hurricanes that I didn't remember until they right. said it, you know, attempted coups that, you know, yes, it was newsworthy. Was it a cover story? Was it that big? No, but every single story on private life just rang true. You know, that's the record of how we live our lives. 
that's the record of, you know, when you come back home and the door is closed and it's you and the people you live with, if they're your family, you know, the choices that you make and the things that you buy and the ways that you spend your time, the things that people really talk about after they finish talking about what they think they're supposed to talk about. That's what I like mm -hmm. to write about. Well, on that point, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but did you ever see the, uh, the, the multi-volume history of a private life history. Yeah, private history life. of private yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a French French series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got all of yeah. them. Yeah. But you're often accused of being an anti-feminist by feminists, right? So let's sort out that question. What is what's the allegation, and what provokes it in your work? Well, the allegation I don't think is precisely enough stated, and I've changed a lot with time, but. My thing with feminist, so I was born in 1961, so I'm 56 mm. or 57. You, you may be 58 this year. Right. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> My husband just told me that. Yes, it's 58 in November. The, the math, Thank you. The math gets harder. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, it's I, been I hard from the very beginning for yeah. me. But um, I was just always repel. I grew up in Berkeley, very lefty place, very lefty parents, very mm. lefty experience. Were your parents professors? Or My what? father, yeah, oh. a historian and a writer. And it was in the English department. But when the 80s came along, and so feminism was part of this very happening, like, legitimate attempt to really change the world. And it was interesting to me. And a lot of things started being talked about, you know, when I was an adolescent, you know, people it was the very beginning of women talking about rape and about things you had to do, you know, before it was all in metaphor, it was all coded language, you know oh, a boy might get fresh with you, or this might happen, or that might happen. This was the beginning of women really talking about rapes. And I, I remember just as a teenager, they weren't talking about date rapes or any intimate partner rape, but I remember as a teenager thinking, this is important, you know, I, I need to know about this. Because your mother would always tell you, and you need to not do this, and you need to not go there. And my father would say certain things, but they wouldn't say, because some man may grab you and attack you and force sex upon you, they just wouldn't say it that directly. It was, I don't know if it was rude or just, I don't know what it was. But I remember thinking, this is all very important. But then when it got to be the mid-80s, and then it became about that it was equally, well, the whole idea of feminism is it's kind of a Marxist premise. All of women are a class. Okay, you know, that's true in some areas. The vote is true. Abortion, it's true. But then it became about this idea that Getting this Yale graduate a job at this investment bank is really an important feminist issue. It's just like this white woman that was raised, you know, maybe middle class, maybe upper middle class. She went to a top college and now it's good for all of us that she work in this callow industry and that we promote her and that and it's really criminal that she doesn't have enough childcare to get this important investment banking work. It's criminal that she's not a partner in the law firm. And I just thought this is totally bogus because now, now we're not a class. Now we're somehow going to push the very top white women into these careers that I certainly wasn't interested in. Who did them? You know, I'm not really interested in the investment bankers of the world. And I certainly don't see it as some. And it wasn't as though once we're in the investment banks, then we'll fund the revolution. It was like once we're in the investment banks, then we can buy the beach house and not have to have our husband be the one to choose it. So I thought that was really bogus and and stupid. And I think now there's a big element of a grift in feminism that any kind of mistake that a man makes, any, like the New York Times, I mean, they're really, they're, you cannot single any story out for particular banality. But this one, 
it was about the space, you know, going to the moon in 68. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> this was a program by and for white men. And then there was another article where it was actually Russia that had won the space race because they were the first to put a black man into space. Right. And I just thought, this is the most, but like the New York Times, their real reporting is still great. And the armature and the depth of knowledge of the people who work there and the armature of the machine is still great. But there's just this deep inanity that runs through all of those social pieces. And all of that, I just think, is bogus and stupid. But the main thing that I have a problem with is the erasing of boys mm. and the erasing of men and the cackling, gleeful way that they've done it. I despise those things. And yet, I have to say, the life I lead, the things I do, the places I go, the rights I hold... I have to absolutely thank feminism for that. And I remember my mother would, oh, when I was a kid, like, I don't know, she was like, now, Kate, when, you know, when you get married, you have to always have a credit card in your name because I see my friends, like, if their husband dies, they can't get credit. And I was like nine. I was like, what is credit? You know, yeah. what do I, I don't want a Hinks card for. <laughs> but like all of those big changes that make me equal to a man, as far as my rights and abilities, I certainly owe to the movement. So I'm not... You know, I'm not some like Phyllis Schlafly, who's probably a more interesting character. I should probably write about her. I don't really know anything about her except the top lines. But mm. I'm not someone who's in any way saying we need to go back or that women shouldn't work or anything like that. I just think that this combination of the grift and the inanity of it that's being passed down to young women, I think is just the inanity, I think, is silly and the grift is ugly. Mm. Well, I actually want to talk about Me Too and and that movement. Maybe we, maybe we can jump into that earlier than I expected. But just a few more general points. So one one is that you so so obviously you have a nuanced position here, and as we have discovered, nuance is the the enemy of common understanding. More and more, it's just if your if your position can't be summarized in a sentence, some detractor will find a completely false reading of it by which to summarize it and right. hold you accountable to that. Or the, le you know, the least charitable interpretation of one of your nuanced points that needs to be, by definition, needs to be understood in context becomes the advertisement for what your position actually is. So just bring me back to, well, one, just for members of the audience who haven't read your stuff. Uh, I, mean, I you, hardly think yeah. there's any members of the audience yeah, yeah. who haven't well, read this obscure yeah. woman's writing. Okay. Well, just or have forgotten that this absolutely friendly, genteel voice <laughs> that you now hear, when someone gets on the wrong side of your pen, your scorn is truly withering. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's delightful to read, but I, I can imagine, I mean, you take it right up to the line where it's just like, you know, I think at least once or twice on Twitter, I've said, okay, Caitlin Flanagan is, you know, guilty of, of murder here. Right? Like, <laughs> somebody call the FBI, right? Right. So it's, I mean, you do essentially what Hitch did, but you, I think you being a woman makes it, I don't think you're perceived as a bully the way he, he was. But I got to say, you, like, I mean, seeing you take on Naomi Wolf, I mean, it's, it's oh. right up to the line. Like, this is, you're just eviscerating her, right? Not enough. I yeah, mean. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, the pleasure of, uh, of Schadenfreude, you know, in your articles is just immense. But do you recalibrate that at all now in the social media age? Or you just, did you set the dial at, at 11 back in the day and it, it's just stayed there? If somebody just comes out in a major place, like a network news program or a really visible newspaper, and they come up with some 
like inane, idiotic thing. And then they're sort of getting the imprimatur of whatever it might be, the New York Times or wherever it is that say Naomi Wolf has published, you know, very serious presses. That just needs to be dealt with. And I am the woman that will take care of that. Yeah. You know, like I always say with Kristen, Kristen Gillibrand, like, don't worry if she ever gets her head above water. I'm oh, like, I just have a total assignment that will be taken care of. So anybody who's really fair game and they're publishing or they're speaking or they're being accepted in a very elite space, then I just, that just drives me crazy. And then the whole idea that they kind of skip over all these half-truths, all I want to do is just expose the truth. And then because I'm funny, it becomes withering. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very, very funny. All right, so I have an enemies list. I want to turn you loose on, on my, my enemies. We can okay. talk about that All right, line. speed round enemies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But So let's talk about, we touched the nanny thing. So tell us, what was the, what was the controversy around your nanny article? There was a lot of discussion about the title for the essay. No one could come up with a good one. And then Colin Murphy at The Atlantic came up with the perfect title, which is a mouthful, but it's How Serfdom Saved the Women's Movement. And it was just about the fact that for all these women suddenly to go into these jobs, including, say, middle-class women who needed two incomes, but also women who were, you know, Ivy League-educated women married to Ivy League-educated men, so they could, either one of them could have, you know, curtailed their career a bit. The way they made it happen, not in the absence of a daycare culture, which we didn't have, but that wasn't really the issue. These women didn't want their kids in daycare. They wanted them to be at home. You know, that's just always felt to be oh, my child's not in daycare. My child is at home. She's in her own crib at nap time. She's playing in the backyard. And, and the person who's doing this caretaking, she's my direct employee. You can't really boss around a daycare worker. Mm-hmm. You know, she's an employee of the daycare and she's responsible to her boss. And so the way that that circle was squared is that we were at the beginning of really the very beginning of mass immigration so that the cities were really filled with women who were easily exploitable. They were some of them not documented in any way. And some of them were desperate. They needed work. They desperately needed work. And they had a lot of great, you know, mothering skills. And so all these women that were going back to work, hired all these nannies. And they did a lot of terrible things that they do to this day, is that, okay, a family hires a nanny. And, oh, you know, the nanny doesn't want to be treated in a cold way as an employee. And the the family doesn't want to think of her as an employee. We wouldn't leave our precious baby with some employee. Why, you know, Rose is a member of the family. She's a member of the family. And, and we do a lot of things for Rosa. You know, she wasn't able to get a car. And we paid the down payment and we put the money down and got her the car and her brother was having trouble and we did this and that for them. And, and, you know, you'd run into them with the nanny. Oh, it's Rosa. She's a member of the family. And inevitably, three years later, you run into the mom and the kid. Where's Rosa? Oh, it didn't work out. There Mm. was something that happened. You know, I'll tell you about it. And it's, you know, there'll always be something that happened. And then Rosa goes on to her next job. But inevitably, I mean, it's really rare to find someone who's paying their social security set-asides for that woman. They don't want to do it. They want to have, and the woman doesn't really want it either. They want the full amount in that check. They want to say Mm -hmm. they're giving Rosa full dollars. But when you're a low-income worker, 
and you move from job to job to job, you should be accruing those social security set-asides. And if you remain poor, or even, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like 70% of the income of people who are like over 60, who are maybe lower middle class, it's their social security check. You're not paying into that. And let alone the fact that you're probably not paying time and a half if they're working over this certain number of hours, but they are really grinding down another woman. Hmm. They're getting ahead in their lives by grinding someone down. And so I wrote extensively about all that. And there was a huge blowback. And then all these women wanted to debate me in places like the 92nd Street. Why? I was like, are you kidding? But, <laughs> but then they were such serious women. And I was getting a lot of heat from my publisher to do it. Or, well, that was when the book came out that was from that article. But they were such big people that it seemed really weird or fearful that I wasn't debating them. And I was fearful because I knew if I went to the 92nd Street Y, there wouldn't be anyone. You got a thousand women with nannies. Right, exactly. And, And I guess intersectionality, which now is kind of in this weird way, which I hate, but is sort of like really making the point that I was making so long ago, maybe would give me some cover. But so I came up with this audacious thing that I didn't think would work. And I won't say the names of the women it worked with, but it worked 100%. I said, I'll debate anyone, anywhere, but we're just going to get a neutral person to look at our taxes for the last five years. Because hmm. they were wow. all moms and I was a mom. And I knew I was clean. Right. You know? Right. And they fell away immediately. They disappeared. Hmm. They disappeared. And, you know, some people could say, well, you're blaming women for this when it's a parenting issue. I think nowadays it's really changed. Fathers are more involved with those decisions. But at that time, it was the women who made those decisions, the women who dealt with the nanny, the women who decided whether or not they were going to do the social security set-asides and all that. And I just thought that that was how the women's movement depended on this kind of serfdom. Mm -hmm. And I think to this extent in L.A., the number of people that don't do that and are really and think of themselves as very progressive West Side Los Angeles people and yet have a very low income worker in their home and think that she's going to be a lifetime retainer like in some, you know, Cary Grant movie where mm-hmm. these like, you know, old retainers are wandering in and out. She's not, you know, Nora Ephron had this funny thing in one of her final books of essays of like things to remember. And she said, one of the most important things to remember is that even the best babysitter of, in the world won't work after a while. Your family's going to change. You know, it's not going to be right. And what have you done for her, is my question, or to her? And this produced a lot of rage from a lot of women. Hmm. But it hmm. also got me, which, and then what just completely maxed them out, and this is why I keep telling people, don't worry, I got invited to join The New Yorker as a staff writer. So... Right. It's like if you're a big, noisy writer and you're taking up this space in the culture and you're really saying some new things, as much as you're going to have a lot of, you know, painful incidents, you know, the world will take note of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess there obviously there are people who are getting canceled. I mean, you, you have to be on the right side of certain questions because, I mean, you are, you are not right wing, right? So you're, I mean, even you... you you violate certain taboos of the left, but when push comes to shove, you're arguing for progressive causes. I don't know if I can say that because... How how would you describe yourself politically? Well, do you remember the Covington incident when those Mm -hmm. kids... Yeah, that was a great flashpoint. 
I just was thinking, so I was like, oh, this I just heard the top line, these kids abusing this Native American man or whatever. I thought, oh, that's terrible. And I just watched the little tiny piece of video that everybody was saying, this is the evidence. Yeah, everyone became a, a clairvoyant reading yes, into a smile. Yes, it was a very odd piece of video. It was one child smiling in a very enigmatic way, standing close to a Native American man who's playing a drum. And I thought, I'm always thinking in cases like this, oh, there must be another clip they're using because clearly this doesn't show me anything that that guy did wrong, that this kid did wrong. Yeah. And and then I just went farther and farther and farther, and it was completely bogus. That guy is a real sort of performance artist who, like, mixes it up in this way in different places and gets attention and was promoting himself as a Vietnam vet and then a Vietnam-era vet. And the whole thing was just a fraudulent event. And then NBC, here I go again. These are the things I say that get me in immediate trouble. Yeah. But Samantha Guthrie on NBC was give. I mean, I... They should have talked to me, these Covington families. She was given the opportunity to interview that exact kid in his home back in wherever they were from, Kentucky, I guess. And it was a very disparaging interview on her part. It was all the worse for it being sort of gentle in the way that she did it because it was a morning show. Mm. But it was she was not an honest broker to that kid. And and the other thing is, now I know all these people, you know, I don't know, Samantha, but like I'm in that world enough that I go to events, parties, dinners with these people if I'm back east. And the right is is absolutely correct. They are all extremely progressive. That is to a person. They are pro-choice to a person. They are anti-Trump to a person. And so the right is absolutely correct that the mainstream media, the important media outlets are peopled by extremely partisan reporters, editors, and opinion writers who try at the best they can. They don't go in there and sort of say, let's make a plot to do this or that. So Yeah. I guess I, I guess know. my point there was just that you would be you would probably be cancelable if you were actually right wing and making some of these same points. Like if you didn't if you couldn't check some of the progressive boxes that at the end of the day make you look more saint than sinner from the point of view of the left. I mean, it's just, right. I mean, just, just take the New Yorker's response to the platforming uh, or almost platforming of Steve Bannon at the New Yorker conference, right? So mm -hmm. David Remnick had a total mutiny on his hands. So if you, if, if you were on some level pro-Bannon, pro-Trump, you know, yeah. making those points, then, you know, that's, then you could, you could have some of the same essays that would spark the same controversy. But when someone drilled down, they would discover that you were politically toxic. And that, I think that would have a You're right. big effect. You're right. Although Bannon is certainly loathsome. I mean, somebody just sent me an email the other day from the magazine based on a couple of tweets. I'd say, and he's like, I just don't understand your position on immigration because I wasn't in one lane or the other. Yeah. It's a very yeah, complex yeah. situation. Well, I want to talk about immigration too. So okay. let me just uh, so we're close to we're circling in on mm. on me too, and sorry. so let's let's, oh, sorry. Okay. let's start there. So I mean, we've had huge cases in recent memory that have focused uh, concern around sexual harassment and violence against women. And this continuum from you know like you know bad jokes to rape, and you know this has all been summarized by the hashtag Me Too movement. There was the Kavanaugh hearings. More recently in the news, we have the Jeffrey Epstein case. 
And I think so many of us who have a nuanced position on this are certainly worried that the continuum doesn't get acknowledged as a continuum, that you have in certain quarters what appears to be a similar level of outrage around literally bad jokes, you know, we wanting people to lose their careers over mm-hmm. bad jokes. I mean, there are literally cases like this is the academic in the elevator who's who, you know, crowded right, elevator at a right. conference and he is says, you know, lingerie yeah, women's lingerie, please. And and, you know, this is that's like a bad, you know, Dean Martin style joke. Right. And I, I didn't hear the other shoe drop there, but I think he was yeah, actually fighting for some, his career. Last I heard, that's what he was doing, was fighting for his yeah, career. Yeah. And people think it's totally warranted, right? You know, this is this, you, you have to hurl these people from the rooftops. And well, I, that's the problem is that where they're so often located is in academic life, which is where we used to have our smartest people. And now I think our. But also, also journalists. Like I had. That's what Re- I said. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. I, I was had immediately Re- thinking that. I had Rebecca Tracer on the podcast, and we didn't go too far in that direction, but she has very strong intuitions here ethically that, you know, you, ha- you have to break some eggs to make this, this equity omelet. And it just doesn't matter uh, on, on some level that people, you know, the people who lose their careers, they'll be fine. They'll get another job, you know. And I mean, that's actually not an exaggeration of, of, the position she articulated, you know, like when I was, you know, the the one example I used was Matt Damon. You know, Matt Damon said something utterly benign and rational around these this twenty megaton controversy. I mean, he simply said, "Listen, we just have to acknowledge that groping someone is not the same thing as raping someone, and telling a bad joke is not the same thing as groping someone. And let's just save our, you know, save the cops for you know one end of the spectrum and." you know, our you know, raised eyebrow for the other end. And had he not immediately backed down, certainly he perceived that had he not just apologized, backed down and shut up for all time on this topic, he was in some real jeopardy as one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And people like Rebecca think it's good that he's terrified, right? Like, let's, let's, we got to silence any, any demurral on this point. So how do you, I want to talk about Kavanaugh, I want to talk about actual violence against women, but I guess the, the larger question here, and the question we really have to sort out, and I have very few intuitions about, how do we navigate the changing social norms in this space? Because there's no question that norms are changing, and many probably should change, but there's just a, it's a very awkward landscape. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a young single person in an office where you're just surrounded by other people, that, that, and those are the people you're going to meet on a day-to-day basis, and you're trying to navigate workplace dating or not. And then we have these examples of you know, people in the news who, whose work we still seemingly should admire. I mean, some of the most creative people around, you know, their biographies continually disgorge these, these what now are unseemly stories, or, and, and were stories at the time just a few short years ago, the norms were different, right? A, a joke told 10 years ago was being told in a very different context. So I'm just wondering how you think about the, the changing norm issue before we get into the actual spectrum of Well, of part of what you're talking about with Matt Damon, that's the grift. So long as we keep them all terrified, so long as we show that we can cancel them, we can push ourselves ahead some way. We can push our our ideas, our half-baked ideas. Well, your ideas should be able to stand on its own without having to, you know, police these people. Sometimes I think, because I've certainly had experiences, me too kind of experiences, not at work, 
because I don't go to the office. So mm-hmm. it'd have to be like me too by the dog. Right. But, and that is the history of women. It's the history of women is the history of rape, the history of assault, the history of, you know, someone was just saying to me this weekend that there was a poll where they asked all these women, what do you do to prevent sexual assault in your life? And they had these long lists. They came up with like 32. I keep my keys in my hand. I walk here. I walk there. And then they asked men, the same sort of social class or office, what do you do? They're like, what are you talking about? I don't do anything. You know, mm. it's the history of, of women and it's a terrible thing. And, and there was, you know, when I was in college, there was this girl who really was raped in a fraternity. So this is like in the 80s. And she went to the dean and, I mean, she had to go, I mean, she woke up in a bloody sheet in a fraternity house. She'd been a virgin, all the rest of it. She got herself to student health. She had, you know, a report on that level. I don't know if it was a rape kit, as we would say today, but, I mean, she had been kind of bruised up. And she went to the dean, and the deans told her, a man, you know, she, he told the young man to be more of a gentleman, and he told her to, you know, what were you doing in a fraternity that late at night? And she was really... Not that it matters, but she really was just doing something very understandable. She got her, she, this was before binge drinking was the norm for young women on campus. Someone had really handed her a spiked drink. So anyways, she decides to stay at college. The, oh, the guy even suggested you might want to transfer. This might be too humiliating. So there's an end to this story, which is that like years go by. Hopefully it ends with a hanging. It just about <laughs> does. Because she's 20 years later or 19 years later, she's about to go to Virginia Beach on vacation with her family. She gets the mail and there's a letter. And the guy who did it has joined AA. Hmm. And he's written, you know, he make, needs to make amends. So he makes this complete amends to her. And she calls the Charlottesville DA. And he's like, okay, we got six months left on the statute of limitations. Wow. And that guy went to jail. And, and so, which, you know, people have strong feelings about that. But the fact of it was, I went to college. It really was a situation where, there was a tremendous amount of rape at the University of Virginia. It had only, I mean, I, I went there in the very early 80s. It had only been co-ed for about 10 years. And it was just really, I mean, I couldn't even imagine even thinking of going to a dean about anything in my personal life. So on the one hand, there's been this great progress. On the other hand, young women want to participate in behaviors that aren't good for them, that cause them tremendous grief, and then looking for some reason for it oh, it's a rape culture, mm. you know, it's, and, and, and then they also attack the West. The West does not have a rape culture. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have rape, but we don't have a rape culture. Okay. So there was so much condensed in that, in even just those last few sentences. I just want to plant a few flags on some landmarks there. So, the, and this is why it's very difficult to have this conversation because the, the ethical fact-based conversation is clearly nuanced. And unless you take the party line here and ignore the nuance, you're, you're susceptible to um, a lot of blowback. But so what you just sketched there is that there, obviously violence against women is a perennial problem. I mean, just you, men are on average stronger than women. A certain percentage of men are go- going to force sex on women. This is just a crime problem that, that has been with us before we had a concept of crime. And then there are moments in culture where even totally apparently civilized people blithely ignore this problem and, and as you describe your your college experience 
that was the case. I mean, and so we we have woken up to the to the problem, and yet it seems like now we have executed a kind of pendulum swing of overcorrection, where now there are there are hoax crimes, right, that we have to respond to, that which, which do immense damage, right? Like the the um, I don't know was what was actually believed to be true about the. Nothing, the ro- the Rolling Stone rape true. case, yeah. So it was it was zero Total there. fantasy projection by okay. the girl. So I mean that is just I don't even know how to think about this, but clearly, false allegations of rape do immense harm not just to the unfairly accused, but to all the women who actually get raped, who then inherit this burden of disbelief, and it really only takes a few cases like that to to spread the skepticism about legitimate accusations. So there's the false accusation problem, and there's just the the exaggeration, which seems to be fairly well subscribed at the moment, of the, just the level of abuse of women and rape on college campuses in 2019. I mean, for, for several years now, people have been claiming that the chance that you're going to get raped when you go to college if you're a girl is just is upon I me. Mean, if, if true, no one would send their daughters to college. I mean, you know, I've heard people say it's like, well, it's like, well, you know, 30% chance you're going to get raped at college, right? Now, either they're defining rape in so loose a way as to encompass sex you regret or something, you know, fairly anodyne, or they're just making things up. But there's just no way that 30% of women are getting raped on college campuses. So it's, this is a hard space to navigate. And one thing I would add, which goes to this issue of false allegations. So my, my bias has always been, you know, unless there's something obviously anomalous in an account, you basically, the default setting is you just believe women, right? You believe the victims. And, and my intuitions here are that it's just, it's such a pathological thing to make up a fake rape account that the likelihood that anyone would do it is, you know, almost infinitesimal. And yet, I've had one conversation recently that has kind of knocked me back on my heels with respect to that intuition. I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and I was at dinner with a barrister. And in, in the UK, as you probably know, barristers, the lawyers often work as prosecutors and defense attorneys. They just, it's on a case by case basis. And I was asking him the kinds of cases he handles. He handles a lot of sex crime cases. And I said, well, what? Percentage would you say of of cases that come to trial? I mean, there are many that get dismissed, you know, before they get there. But what percentage come to trial where you're worried? Let's say you're on the prosecution side. You're worried that you're actually prosecuting a guy for a a made up offense. That this is not what was not actually a rape. It was not. And I was expecting him to say that virtually never happens. And what I got from him was just. The antithesis. I mean, it was like thirty to fifty percent in his experience, where he's he's as a prosecutor worried that this guy is just getting railroaded by somebody who just regretted the sex or had some other reason to hate him and knew that this was a way to de- destroy his life. Now, I don't. Again, this is just one conversation of one, you know, based on one barrister's experience, but it completely ransacked my ethical intuitions here and. Again, with like with maybe we can filter this through the the case of Kavanaugh. I mean, when I looked at Kavanaugh, I saw this fraternity jerk who seemed like he was very likely guilty as charged. And while this wasn't you know criminally actionable, it was enough to warrant him not being on the Supreme Court, in my view. And and certainly his 
propensity to lie about it and and you know you know theatrically protest his innocence in the way that he did. It just seemed like he was radioactive from my point of view. But half of the country had the opposite intuition, which is here's a guy who is probably guilty of of, of either nothing or something that virtually every college age man was guilty of at some point, right? Something that could be misinterpreted. And now it's gonna now this is gonna come out of his closet and and ruin his life. It was a high school event. It was a high school event, yeah, Yeah, right. I'm just wondering so let's talk about this issue of say whatever you want about Kavanaugh, but let's just talk about this issue of of false accusation and how to just how to I mean what I got a lot of in in after the Kavanaugh hearing was I rate emails and tweets from my audience around whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty. I mean, the fact that there was no proof here, apart from her saying it was so, seemed to be dispositive for people. But again, that was not my intuition at the time, and it's, it's, not, it's just not my default intuition. It seemed to me that there was nothing for her to gain and everything for her to lose to give this testimony. So as far as the motive to lie about this, it seems it, it, it seemed very hard to find. But yeah, I just pitched that to you because it's, it's not a it's a very difficult thing to. Well, sort I had out. a very strange journey with the Kavanaugh situation because I'd heard that there was this potential claim coming up. I, I was completely agnostic about Brett Kavanaugh. I didn't really know anything about him. I mean, I knew that Trump had had been the one to nominate him, so. You know, I sort of had a bit of skepticism because of that. But then the guy he'd done just before, Roberts, was that it? He, you know, he turned out to be not that bad. So anyways, I was agnostic about it, but I was hearing this rumbling that this woman, and then I heard a little bit that it was this high school event. And then the next day, I was just sitting at Santa Monica High School. A friend of mine was becoming a, an honored grad Hall of Famer there. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, kind of bored during the middle of the program. I scrolled through my phone and, I, and then Washington Post was just breaking that it was in her psychiatrist notes. So I automatically said, I believe, you know, because I knew so many people and something like this happened to me when I was in high school. And I just thought, well, there it is. You know, you're not going to waste your time and money in your psychiatrist appointment to bring up, you know, there's really no in there. And this is years before he would be nominated to the Supreme Court. Right, exactly. You're laying the groundwork for a false allegation. A very long con, you know. So it's like, well, we've we've got all our representatives out there for like every man who could ever be possibly nominated, telling their shrinks things that he's done. So I just quickly that night just wrote out, yeah, I believe her. You know, I had this thing happen to me. I described it. It was very, very, very derailing and upsetting for me as a 17-year-old girl, kind of in a, or 16-year-old, 16 or 17-year-old girl in my senior year of high school and didn't tell anybody about it. I mean, and then a few years passed. I remember when I went to college, it was the first time I heard the term date rape. And it was just like, Mm. sound like an oxymoron, like, date rape but date is this and and i remember going ah it was just like the world opened up to me that the two things could coexist so anyways i wrote that and immediately i had to go to dc for just the atlantic festival and it was right in the middle of all this kavanaugh stuff and the city was going crazy and we had all of the, we had Lindsey Graham on the main stage. We had everybody on the main stage, and it was really like the Atlantic was like the right time from the sort of callous news breaking way of talking about things. So, anyways, I go to bed the first night. I wake up the next morning, and I'm looking at my Twitter, and somebody's reached out to me and said, "Ben Sass of Nebraska is reading your piece on the Senate floor." And I was like, "Who's Ben Sass of Nebraska? <laughs> you know, like what are you talking about?" 
And then I thought, this is just this. They must have, you know, how things come through on Twitter. You're always getting tagged on things you have no reason being in. And someone else said, Ben Sass is reading your piece into the record. And here's the video. And then I clicked on this video and it was the most embarrassing thing I'd ever. I mean, what can I say? I'm always embarrassed. I'm just I live in a state of embarrassment. But it was just really awful because he was just calling me Mrs. Flanagan, which is my mother's name. Like right. I'm not Mrs. Flanagan. And then he was like, poor, you know, he's, he's really laying it on like, poor Mrs. Flanagan. You know, she never thought she could get a date again. Imagine how Mrs. Flanagan would have felt night after night. Like he's just laying it on. And I'm like, this is really mortifying. Like, then that's what I'm telling myself. Well, that's the cost that you pay when you put your personal stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like you might have louts retweeting it or you might get it read on the Senate floor and be like in a pot embarrassed way. But then then I thought, but I guess he's voted against Kavanaugh because he really sees my piece. And then I found out he didn't vote yeah. against Kavanaugh. I was yeah. like, I was really jacked up. I mean, I was like, so I'm in D.C. And like my editor's like, go talk to him right now. And and then he had just left to Nebraska. And now we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And I like Ben a lot. But so that all happened. And then after that happened, Michael Barbaro from The Times. Do you ever listen to The Daily? Yeah, yeah. So he happened to be out in L.A. And he had... They'd never done a story that wasn't from the Times reporting, but he said, this seems to really, and he has this, there's this fabulous guy, Andy Mills, who works there. He's yeah, really uh, smart. Yeah, I know Andy Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, just, just by phone and email, but yeah, he's, he's Oh, great. he's fantastic. Yeah. I spent a weekend with him at Aspen once. He's this great guy and really smart. Anyways, can you do it? I'm like, yes. So, my, so this thing happened when I was 16. This conversation with Michael Barbaro happens when I'm like 56 or whatever we've decided I am. and. I had never, ever in my whole life talked about it in any other way except philosophically. Because when the trauma of it had happened, I wasn't telling anybody. And then I learned about date rape years later. And then I'm like, I understand this new term. It's revolutionary. You know, I had something like this happen. And for some reason, I just sat down across from Michael Barbaro and he goes, tell me about senior year of high school. And I thought, I never have had anything like this happen to me in an interview. I just couldn't keep it together. And mm. I was mortified. There were all these young people there. I thought I can't cancel. I literally thought I'm not going to make it through this. And I just realized that there was a tremendous amount of trauma that I had been holding in my body mm. for 40 years that I talked about it to people, but always in a Yes, I'm on the side of these young women. You know, I had something like this happen to me once at a beach. You know, one of my parents moved. This guy I didn't know well. And uh, do you feel that it was a genuine unmasking of the trauma that was there? Or do you feel like the framing and focus in this way? I mean, you were, you were given a very, very kind of therapeutic framing and, yes. and, and problematized focus. Did that kind of amplify? Your, well, it was your, your a weird event of, of a, in that the trauma. nice young people who make the show that are very smart, they would describe me like in the, I think maybe in the promo to the piece and then online, like we're going to be talking to a sexual assault survivor. So right away, I hold their name for what happened to me, you know, whereas something that happened to me on a date is more correct, you know, so, but, but truly, I didn't think I was unguarded at all when I went into that interview. 
And suddenly these people are leaning in and asking me, and I'm just telling you, the thing that came out of me, if it had just been the therapeutic context, I would have been different. I would have said, yes, and I feel fealty to other young women and this and that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that. It was like I was 16 years old. I really didn't think I'd get through it. And I just think, you know, there's all these women. You know, men always think that women are hysterical, and we are a little bit hysterical because we hold all this trauma in us. Like even women like me who are just very careful about, you know, when I was young and and sexual danger and things like that, it still happens. And I think that it, then we get into arguments like the Kavanaugh argument where we aren't logical. And men are like, this isn't logical. Where's your evidence? You're saying something happened 40 years ago. She doesn't remember where it happened. She doesn't remember this. How can you possibly be trying to say this should stop a man from becoming a Supreme Court justice. And women are just in this volatile fellow feeling of having things like this happen to them. And we all went a little bit nuts. Mm. But it was, so it's, it's, I don't think men are, women are as logical as men on a lot of things. And it's because... We should just... Okay, stop that. Erase that part. No, 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 we'll keep that. But just just, just a sanity check here. (laughs) Even that statement in the current environment is anathema. Just to acknowledge that there's any biological difference between men and women, which has psychological correlates, that is already among the sisters a taboo, right? I mean, that, you know, the, the, if you go far. And the brothers, too, a lot yeah, of the brothers. Yeah, yeah, if you just go far <laughs> enough left, certainly on women's issues, it's just I inadmissible. Think women's issues is not a term anymore. Yeah, well, I'm I, I'm sure I'm a dinosaur in several several different ways in this conversation, but if to be woke is to be convinced on this point that all of the apparent differences between men and women are culturally enforced to the detriment of women, and what you want is a, a kind of hard reset of cultural expectations, and thereafter you will find that. You should have a 50-50 representation of women in every walk of life and, you know... A, Except uh, the death 100... row. They don't want them 50-50. Like, it's like, right. okay, yeah, right. yeah, let's really well, yeah, become as violent... Find all the serial killers. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. It's like we would have to introduce into our collective makeup enough violence and enough power and enough rage that we could get ourselves in a death row, man, in a serious way. And right. we can't break in, man. It's a freaking glass ceiling on death row. So that's just, you know, it doesn't hold up to me that these things aren't legitimate phenomena. I, th- I think we have your next title, the, the death row glass ceiling. Okay, all right. <laughs> but so then what do we do about the prospect of either false allegations or honest confessions of trauma over things that shouldn't be traumatizing. I mean, so that we now have a generation of people who have been convinced that certain things are traumatic, which other generations could rightfully say, well, those were normal and unavoidable, and you should have a thicker skin, right? Like, so, and where is the line there? Because clearly there are norms that we do want to change, right? I mean, this is like, it's not like the Mad Men era is, the, is something we should be nostalgic for, but Although the main premise of the show was nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was that's fascinating. And I'm a fan of the show. But some of the things you saw in the show 
you couldn't believe were actually true then. I mean, I, I assume that they were not actually taking much, much poetic license, but I mean, it was just mind-boggling the stuff that was normal, mm -hmm. you know, around gender and race and and everything else. So yeah, so what do you do? Like the the Rolling Stone case, right? Listen, let me tell you about that. If this woman on her big contract at Rolling Stone had turned that piece in and it was something that was hugely maligning, let's just say, a very leftist group on a particular campus and saying, you know, this, the, this, the social, demo, the, you know, the American Democratic Socialists at Cornell are actually a den of rapists. I have no evidence except one unhinged person that told me a story mm. that did not check out at all. But you have to be careful about these leftists on campus. And if your child says they're going to the Democratic Socialists of America, you better think twice. That would not get published immediately. Mm. There was the whole idea that fact-checking is now was going to somehow be secondary to believe all women. Even if you have this incredibly unstable young woman, a lot more has come out about her. She's a really unstable person. That, and I'll tell you what, on the one hand, Sabrina Ederly is the name of the woman who wrote it, Sabrina Rubin Ederly. On the one hand, I have, comp I want to say compassion, empathy, because I know what it's like when you have a story coming out the next day. And I'm always, would I get anything wrong? Like, once I got wrong, the state that Dick Luger was from, and mm -hmm. it was just, I remember getting the news and the checkers were really apologizing and I was trying to be a grown up about it. But in my mind, I was like, how the hell could you have let this happen to me? You know, and of course, it's a big non-issue. So I can't imagine what it would be like to find out publicly that your whole thing is wrong and you've made unbelievable claims with a huge legal ramifications. But let's just remind people, this was a, a allegation of a gang rape at a fraternity. At, at a fraternity house at the University of Virginia, right. which all things come circle. Nobody's ever written about this. The reason that girl made that story up is that was the fraternity house where Liz, the girl whom I told you about earlier, that's where she was raped. Her book about the subject had become an assigned book at UVA. And so this idea of violent, really violent rapes and nobody listens and fraternities was percolating among the young women. And that, that was the whole cloth that this girl used to create her story. Okay, well, that is ironic. The truthful account of rape at this fraternity just planted the seed for a, a manufactured account. Right. Yeah. But what you were saying earlier about the potential pathology of someone who would make up, you know, a rape. Well, I would submit to you a di slightly different thing. A young woman that, that's not pathological at all. A young woman has a sexual encounter with a young man, and she feels really bad about that. You know, she feels like she didn't expect it to go so far so fast, or she, she, you know, was, they were both really drunk, and she was okay with it then, but whatever. So she's kind of trying to figure it all out, and then she goes to a campus therapist, and the therapist's job is to always build up your own sort of sense of self and ego. and. And then the therapist would absolutely, because they're all infused with this notion, have you ever thought that this could have been a rape? Right. You know, well, no, I'm 19. I'm in college. You know, I've met what? And the therapist kind of explains some of that. And the girl walks out, wow, you know, <gasps> and she talks to her friends and they're like, yes. And then at that point, 
the ugly thing happens, which is everyone goes, you got to turn him in. You got to go. You got to tell him right on. And that's the whole phenomenon where being the, the empowered victim is, that's the ugliness that, that then happens. And that this idea that they seem to have that everybody's, so I think that the grift comes in, the poison comes in, the grift comes in that you have a whole generation of older feminists on college who are very much creating this context that, yeah, these boys are rapists, these girls need help, we're going to have Title IX, oh, we have these new rules coming in, we're going to follow them, and finally we're going to solve this problem. And in reality, an awful lot of young men get railroaded. And I'll tell you for absolute certain, an awful lot of young men that actually probably did something on college campuses never get reported because they're big, successful, popular athletes. They're, mm -hmm. they're just kids that would, you know, that you wouldn't want to be known as the girl who brought them down because they're powerful and popular in all sorts of ways on campus. So I think that whole system is a mess. But what's interesting about it is that so. We used to have a system that when women went to college, when anybody went to college, there was a lot of supervision, you know, uh, especially for young women. There were parietals. That, so there were times you could be checked. If a guy was going to take you on a date, he had to sign you out of the dorm, which, of course, is, you know, paternalistic, patronizing, whatever. That is quaint. Yeah. But they've got his name. I mean, there was just a little bit of like, yeah, we've got your name yeah. and we know you went out with her at this time and we know you're coming. There was just that little. and it, and. There was a notion that, you know, and parties that were hosted by the school had chaperones, like the big dances and whatever they had chaperones. I'm not saying there wasn't plenty of date rape, but there was some implemented acceptance that the male students are a threat to the female students. And we are really watching and we are really, you know, implementing a lot of things to say we're aware of that and we're really trying to. And the, the guarantee sort of to the mothers of America, I think, was that we may not return a virgin to you in four years, but mm -hmm. I'll, we'll return someone who can maintain the appearance of, you know, <laughs> you can, it's like we've got enough in place to do that. But now, of course, there's no more in loco parentis. The kids simultaneously, these young women simultaneously feel super powerful to go and do wherever they want. But then as though they're constantly being attacked and they need constant intervention from the university to into their sex lives to protect them in a super maternal, paternal way. So we've really emphasized and empowered some really, some behaviors and thoughts that make women feel feeble on the one hand and then caustically empowered mm -hmm. and powerful on the other. And the other thing that women won't say is that there is an element of drama you know there's a dramatic element it's a lot of times i think what can happen and again i am a survivor as we say now so i certainly and and then i had something at university of virginia happen that was terrible so i certainly know these things happen i'm certainly on the side of of young women but there's a thing where okay so how can i say this just clearly not even politically correctly Sometimes what'll happen, and we see this in a lot of the big viral things that have happened in the last couple of years with Aziz Ansari and others, there'll be a sexual encounter where a woman wants to, to fully own the freedoms of today. And I think 
I have to take my hat off to young women. I did not think they would be able to achieve a reality where they could have truly casual sex, truly hookup sex, and no social stigma or, you know, no idea that, well, you could do that, but you're going to be a slut and you're not going to get married or whatever, that they could really do it and maintain absolute parity with any guy that's sleeping around a lot. They achieved that. What they didn't achieve was the same emotional fabric into which a sexual encounter can live, you know, so that when they have this encounter and it's consensual sexually, but he hasn't really been nice to her or interested in her Mm. or following up with her, I think that can be very painful in ways that young women are not, you know, it was, it was so lectured into our gen- my generation that it was hampering. But there, there is a sense that I want, I want to resolve this on an emotional level. I want to legislate this. I want to talk it over. And I want to be in your presence. And I want to relive and relive this moment and talk about it in very precise clinical terms, which I think has become this really weird. Again, when I was young, it was, wow, in the newspaper, they're putting the exact physical things that happened during a rape. That was really powerful. And it was like, wow, you know, women are using these words and they're being allowed to put in the paper and people are seeing what really happened to her. And I bet that jury's going to find him guilty because they have that exact language. Now, that language has taken on a weird pornography, a life of erotic content. And I think some of these descriptions of the horrible Epstein cases with the massage and the this and the sex toys, it's told in a way that that there's a lurid crossover between the facts of a case and a weird creation of erotic pornographic material. Anyways, back to the college girl. If she can make this, on the one hand, she seems really angry and certain but she's also going to bring herself back into the world of that night and mm. back into the world with that young man and back into the world where he has to account for himself. And really what she wants him to account for a lot of times is the emotions that he stirred up in her, but did not in any way understand the power of those emotions and didn't think that casual sex, hookup culture, whatever, that he owed more affection. In that context, he was taking it straight ahead. We're in a new culture. We're in a hookup culture. She's initiating this. It's okay to do these things. And I think that that's what's at the heart of a lot of these these events that now maybe Rebecca Traster would want to put into a very clear binary. You know, it's an assault. It doesn't matter what things may be led up to it. It doesn't matter what emotions happened. It's an assault. All assaults are, by definition, wrong, and he needs to be, even if a few extra get railroaded and have to register as sex offenders in their home community, that's better. So I think that's what goes on and is maybe not discussed much. One thing you referenced with respect to how psychiatrists and psychotherapists can frame this, that's a place where you can see a moral panic getting kindled because this is what this is what happened with the the childhood satanic abuse panic about, you know thing. several decades ago where you had this notion this this clinical notion that hypnosis was a way to uncover buried memories of trauma and then you just had what this massive experiment of of witness tampering essentially where you had these these manufactured memories 
And it was amazing to look back on because the numbers of accusations and their the florid irrationality surrounding them. Perhaps you're familiar with this, some of this writing, but I mean, Lawrence Wright, for instance, mm-hmm. wrote about this in, in The New Yorker, and he wrote a, a short book on this. When he was on the podcast, he, t- he told me the story where he realized he had a problem because he, or that we had a problem because he, he went to a training led by a, a law enforcement agent at the, just the height of the, the satanic abuse panic. And this was a training for journalists and, and I guess just the interested public. But he said, and this again, this is a cop giving this information to the public. He said, every year now, there are 50,000 murders of children by satanic cults. And, and Lawrence th- thought for a second, said, wait a minute, there has never been a year where there have been 50,000 murders of any kind in the U.S., right? So what is happening here? And I don't think the, the Me Too overreach ha- has achieved that level of hysteria, but you could see how it could, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're, I mean, if we're capable of imagining, you know, satanic cults in our midst sacrificing babies, it's easy to see how this pendulum swing could, could go way too far. But you know, the difference is, there were no satanic daycares, and there are women that get raped. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah, no, but that that just makes it harder. Right, that's to what I'm saying. Yeah, that's where yeah. it's just not. We we can't just say. Because I remember all that going on. I remember like, my father and I really remember like one day we were watching like the Phil Donahue show. And it was just like, it was just as you were saying, that cop was saying, like you would watch like, forget Phil Donahue, you'd watch the nightly news and they would kind of report like this is that because of this growing satanic problem in America. With, and you'd, it was just really reported on that level. It was really a mass delusion. Yeah. Again, it was getting back to my earlier it was not unrelated to women leaving children for the first time mm. in large scale and wondering what was happening. That's interesting. And a lot of a lot of talk in the press that you should never leave a child, you shouldn't go to work, your child isn't going to, you know, people were, have always been looking for some definitive reason why women shouldn't go to work and leave their child. And so like the best one they could come up with is that you might be in a satanic daycare, you know, but it really took hold to that when I got my first teaching job in Los Angeles in 1987, I had to get fingerprinted. And I was like, say what now? Like, because I'd come from New Orleans where I like I was teaching school. I'm like, why do I have to get fingerprinted? And she's like, well, you know, because of the McMartin preschool, all teachers in California now have to be fingerprinted. So I was like, I had to get fingerprinted because somebody was like having a, del- a delusion, you know? Yeah, and the horrible thing about that is I, I, I forgot, had forgotten about this whole story until I, I spoke with Lawrence. And then I, I realized that my memory of the McMartin trial was that the whole thing was real and they were guilty and they were sent to prison for good reason. I mean, they were sent to prison, but you know, we had the, the lives of uh, apparently totally innocent people right. ruined by these- Kind of creepy people in yeah, other ways, right, but, but not at all satanically yeah, yes, evil. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about how one comes back from something like this or anything for which it seems like there should be some possible apology that should be redeeming, right? Like, you know, we, if we have truth and reconciliation commissions for guys who have been jerks, right? Obviously, there, there has to be a path back 
because it's okay to be a jerk. Because we know there are people who get out of prison after 20 years and they get they get forgiven by society because they've paid their dues. Let's take the Kavanaugh case. Let's say it was exactly as she described. Let's say he wanted to just admit it and move on <laughs> because he stood in relationship to his past callousness in the same in the same place we do which is we he he's just as judgmental of it as as we are right he's Although horrified he, by he, being a drunk 16 year old who would treat a girl that way right. perhaps i'm sure there's some delta between what he thought he was doing and the effect it would have and and the effect it in fact did have right so for instance if never in a million years would he have actually raped her right she doesn't know that right so she's experiencing an attempted rape mm-hmm. right and l- let's say it's true to say that you know that was not even in the realm of possibility for him you know he just thought he was he was wrestling with her having fun he was fun showing with, off to his friend showing off to his friend whatever it was he was an asshole but in his own mind he was not an aspiring rapist so is there a possible apology that would have worked for him in, in, in the sense that would have rebooted his chance of being a Supreme Court justice? Or is, this, is that unthinkable? Well, no, the whole thing kind of proves the horrible reality of our, the fact that he was confirmed. The reality of our time is that the most important, I have had to make some apologies in my life. Believe you me. It is the hardest thing. Like so many people don't know how to apologize. I'm sorry you felt that way. Yeah, you know, yeah. or like just sort of like, boy, that, For, forgive me right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like, no, when you apologize, you sit there and you have to really come to terms with everything you did wrong and humbly state that, you know, all these things you did, you and there's, you don't need to explain why you did it. You just need to say these were really wrong things. And I really apologize to you. And is there anything I can do to to right the situation? I mean, it's humbling. It's hard. It's the worst thing to have to do, but it's the best thing to do because you get you get your relationships back, or you're just right with the world again. But but but, but what do you think? If he what, had apologized, what, yeah, is there, there's no conceivable apology that would have worked. So what do you think should make an apology satisfactory? Well, to um, American contemporary feminism, there's no apology. That's just a confession of the most heinous crime. Right. But that's clearly pathological if people can grow and people can change and people can therefore be redeemed. I mean, if, that, if, if you don't see a path to change and redemption, well, then everyone is condemned by their worst moment in adolescence or whenever, whenever it came. And then there's nothing more to say. You know, their, their life is derailed by, you know, one drunken moment or one moment when they were... Uh, under tremendous stress or when they were asked to go fight a war that they didn't choose and, you know, they're on a battlefield and they're abiding by rules that, you know, just don't make any sense in civilian life or whatever it is. Well, I think the most important thing for today is, I just always say this, I think Dan Savage and his podcast are absolutely, like, I don't have anyone, anything to tell anybody about how to have a life full of you know, sort of semi-anonymous sex. I don't know anything about it, but he gives exactly the right good advice to something that's just foreign to me. And he'll say, you know, you guys need to set this all up beforehand. You need to talk about it explicitly. You need to be absolutely on the same page. And and he gets into some moral issues where people want to cheat on a, on a partner. And he said things like, you know, 
that's not right unless you both have discussed that that can be part of the relationship. So he at least is giving people an idea of some kind of framework for how they can just really be 100% on the same page. Is it along the lines of what is now advocated popularly on campuses where every increment of intimacy has to be pre-negotiated, where it's like, like, you know, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And unless you get an explicit yes at every stage along the way, you're in dangerous territory? I don't know if Dan would say that exactly, but he would say, I know that he said just this year at the Atlantic Festival, he said, you know, you straight people, you get that one agreement on consent and then you go to town and afterwards somebody's hurt. He said, for gay people, that's the start of the conversation. So I don't know if it's that constant affirmative Uh consent, but I do know another thing about the New York Times, which is like, great newspaper in so many ways, but whenever they walk around going, we just don't know why people don't like us. It's because of things like they ran this, you could just tell that they supported this piece. It was a woman's opinion piece. She was 30. She'd been hooking up with a 25-year-old guy from Tinder. And he just kept asking, is it okay if I do this? If I okay if I do that? And she was just tearing him apart in the piece that, you know, this isn't sexy. This is ridiculous. You know, I wouldn't have brought you over to my empty house on a snowy day from Tinder if I didn't want us to have this hookup or whatever. Then by the end of the article, what she's really upset about is he didn't call her again. (laughs) So it's like, but they didn't address, no editor said, gee, Susie, it seems like you're saying here what's really hurtful to you is that he said he was going to make you this dinner with a balsamic fig reduction, but he never called you back (laughs) to make that. It's literally the detail. Maybe that's what you're upset about, not that he asked for all this consent. So women want to have They want to have things that are very much in the world of kind of, we would think of maybe the 1950s. They want a date structure where they're respected, where there's, where the way women in the past learned to gauge a man's level of affection and attention before there was sexuality. Now they want to have sex and just assume that men won't be jerks, as you're saying, and that men will give them that affection and and so forth. But they'll also mock them if they do, if they aren't like macho enough. When they're, you know, having sex with them, there's not as horrible as the old codes were. And they were really horrible in a lot of ways. At least everybody, when they, even when they were violating the code, they knew they were violating the code. Right. And right. now there's no code. All right. Well, I'm not sure we gave anyone dating advice that they can use to okay. navigate by here, but it's certainly interesting. Let's, a slight pivot that takes us on, onto similar territory, but it seems that a college campus is a lens that now focuses so many of the issues we we've, we've been worrying about it and and ways in which the the left is deranging itself and i want to kind of bend this finally back into the question of politics but i think many of us who are liberal in in certainly in the social sense are worrying that the left is becoming a, a caricature of itself to the point where in the near term, you know, four more years of Trump are virtually guaranteed. And worse, it is amplifying an all too explicable populist right wing backlash against political correctness and wokeness and intellectual dishonesty. And I mean, so you, you mentioned the, the New York Times several times. It's so consequential to me when the New York Times gets it wrong in predictably politicized ways. So it just it just seems we, we have a problem on the left for which the 
the college campus it was the first crucible that really revealed the chemistry here, and now it has spread to tech and to journalism and, and elsewhere. But, and you have some unique insight about the educational system because you were a college counselor at, at, a, at a very prestigious high school, and then you wrote that we had this, this admission scandal which, right. for which you wrote this absolutely delicious takedown piece in The Atlantic. Just give me your your view of of just the you know the conveyor belt that takes these young minds into the citadel of wokeness on an American university campus. Well, the first thing I think about that is you know growing up in Berkeley. I was born in 1961, and my father's a professor at Berkeley, and so what was going on in my childhood? What were the student revolutions of the 1960s? And let me tell you, these kids had skin in the game. They were striking from the university. They were dropping out. They were extremely estranged from their parents. There was all this heartbreak. The big saying of the time was, what did we do wrong? Why is our child not talking to us anymore? And they were invested in breaking with these orders specifically of their parents. But these, you know, social justice warriors has become kind of a problematic phrase in itself, but these super bougie kids who are at expensive private colleges, and then they're going to lecture me or you or other students about the right way to be one with the people. You know, if you really have those values, well, that's great. But what the hell are you doing at a private college? You should be you know, LA City College, say for our city, it's a great place to go to school. It's some great classes. And if you'll really, you won't have to manufacture social outrage because you'll see what it's like to be among the people that are trying to get an education while they're, while they're working and how hard it is to get a class. And, you know, so this idea, and then the parents, the white parents, they fetishize their white children's stupid opinions. Because stupid political <laughs> opinions are now just as like in the 40s, having like an Argyle sweater was a sign that your son was a college man. Now, if he's got these jackass opinions, then it's like, yeah, he's at Princeton. You know, like, yeah, he's an idiot, but he's at Princeton. Like, so there's this whole echo chamber and they say these things and they want these things. But you follow the trajectory over time. They're very conventional people. They end up in huge numbers marrying in their 30s in sort of st- in, and then they end up in huge numbers having kind of conventional marriages. So this is the definition of a phase mm. for these like upper middle class white kids. That- well, the, the, demographically, it's interesting that the, the most woke people are disproportionately white and well off, right? right? This is like an affectation. I mean, ironically uh, and paradoxically, it's a symptom of white privilege to be Absolutely. especially woke. You know, it's not, oh, to, that's not it to say that no one of color is a lot of money woke, to be woke, you know, yeah. and to not, if you're really struggling in, in other ways, you know, and you're with like a multi, you know, very genuinely, and that's the other thing I always say, there's a difference between genuine diversity and the socially engineered diversity of these campuses. Because when you're in a really diverse workplace, as my kids have been in their summer jobs, people in America work really well together. Mm. Like everybody's like, you know, doing their job, whether it's making the pizzas or whatever they're doing, and they're learning about each other and they're learning that, you know, and they inevitably have more in common than not. They're young kids working at a tennis shop. But 
once you get them pulled out into this super rarefied world, and, and I think that the elite colleges exploit African-American students like crazy. And I think the elite colleges have cost us two whole generations of black doctors. And I think that- well, they... what, what do you mean by that? Well, look at Harvard. I mean, first place, I'm not, there's a lot now at colleges. By now, there's a lot of second generation college and third and fourth generation college African-American kids. But there's still a large number of kids. It's the first generation of college. And these kids want to do what every first generation wants to do. They want to be doctors, you know? It's what my, you know, the first son to be born in America back in the day. That's what he wanted to do. And it's a lot of times it's all over their application. You know, like, that's what I want to do. I'm the top science student. I'm this and I'm going to be a doctor. And Harvard sits in that admissions committee and they know he can't. You can't get here from there, you know, if you're... Why? It, because he, he or she's not a good enough student? No, to... it's because he or she is stuck in a, you know, not great public school that doesn't have a lot of advantages, maybe doesn't have all the AP courses, and maybe that student's extracurricular activity is working 20 hours a week and giving most of the money to mom to help raise other kids, you know, formidably worthwhile person, but he's going to be in Harvard with all of these, you know, like Palo Alto kids that are, you know, maybe they're tiger parented Asian kids who are just, they've had every science advantage, everything. They've been tutored. They've had experiences that you, you know, in labs that you can't believe high school kids have. And they roar in through the program. And you can't sort of say, well, we're provisionally admitting you, but you'll have to take like a, a you know, a remedial program to get in here. Obviously, Harvard's not going to do that. And so the numbers of black kids in STEM at Harvard are just a, really a scandal. So just to some, yes. for some context here, so the, Harvard is now getting pilloried for the consequences of their affirmative action policy. By me, you mean? No, 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 <laughs> no. By, by the world. Because so it's true to say that they let in a large number of African Americans and they keep out a large number of Asians at this point or ha have been for, for some time. And then there's a lawsuit from, you know, some Asian American group, which seems, which is all too understandable, but it's a, it's a question of what to do about the ground truth here. I think, I think it's, I think it's true to say that if it was a pure blind meritocracy, if they were just looking at test scores and essays and, you know, the documents in a truly race blind way, I think, I think the numbers were Harvard admitted that they would have 57% Asian, something like 30% white, and something like 2% African American. I don't know what the, what the other categories were. But in an effort to have some balance that reflects the general society, if you were an Asian American, to have the same likelihood of getting in as an African American to Harvard, or to this might be wide for the whole Ivy League, you had to have more than a more than four hundred points higher on the on the SAT. It's just you know clearly the deck is stacked against Asians at the moment. Yes, how no. how, how is what you're saying interacting with those? Well, the first data? thing is if you, if the colleges got together forty years ago and a social scientist said we want you to start a race war, they could not have done a better job. They're like let's. Let's let in some whites with lower scores because their fathers went here. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Let's keep out a lot of Asians with really high scores 
because we don't want too many of them. And let's it's just like let's let in a lot of African-American students who have lower scores so that that can kind of be a representation of America. And inevitably, they've caused grave harm to students. And I was really interested. Two things that really caught my attention before I like write a piece on this and get some hard data. But these are just two, as you're saying, with the barrister anecdotal things. I read Michelle Obama's autobiography. Did you read it? No. It's a fantastic book. Mm. I was just like, after Hillary Clinton's, I was like, there's no way this is going to be good. It was right. phenomenally great. It was just so honest. And she's such an excellent person in every way. Yeah. But one of the things is all her life, she wanted to be a pediatrician, her whole life. And it makes sense. She loves children. Once she got out of the law firm, she went to work in hospitals. That's really where her heart was. And something happened at Princeton. She's a little vague on it. But she says the classes were much harder than she thought. And she spent time elsewhere. And I think she ended up with a sociology major, maybe. And one way or another, not that going to Harvard Law School isn't, you know, the creme de la creme in its own way. Some way or another, she didn't become a pediatrician. Some way or another, she ended up in the humanities. Right. And then the other piece of evidence, I don't want to say evidence, but that really caught my attention is, did you hear about the big incident at the Williams College this spring in the um, student government with a young woman asking for money for the, well, it was, I had seen it like online. It was like some vile, really right wing thing. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to watch the whole video because the whole thing was on video. Williams College, young black woman is the first to come in and she wants to have some money allocated to her for the pre-frosh weekend. She wants to have some events for African-American students and she, you know, a couple of meals and some music and some located places. And she wants a very small amount of money to do this. And so the kids are like, you know, they're geeking out as student government kids will do. You know, they always think they're all, each of them are on the Ways and Means Committee asking her all these questions. And, but at the end of the day, they, they are like, great, here's your full budget and thank you so much and we'll get that going. So I'm thinking, well, this can't be the problem. Like 15 minutes later, she and a a guy, a friend of hers, another African-American kid, they come slamming into the room and they are outraged. And it turns out she had just been keeping her temper the whole time because she feels that and he feels that this is how black kids are treated at Williams. She wants this small amount of money. And he was smart. He said, you know, take out your calculators. What percent of your budget was she looking for? Of course, like 0.7 percent. And you put her through all this and you asked her all these questions and you made her do all these things. And I'm kind of listening like interesting. I just thought it's interesting to think of how she perceived it, you know. And I'm like, I wonder who's right, you know. And of course, the stupid student government were so cowed by a black person saying they'd done something wrong that none of them had any courage to say, well, you know, actually, everybody has to do this. We do this to the Jews and the Asians. Exactly. And, you know, and a lot of people don't get the money or whatever. I'm sure that would be a perfectly good answer to this. So I'm kind of going back and forth. I'm mostly on the student government side, although I really feel for the girl in a lot of ways, because even when she was asking for the money, she said when she'd come to pre-frosh weekend, there was a night that there was a dinner for freshmen and she just kind of looked in and everybody seemed so remote to her and such another world. She just slunk away and didn't have any dinner. And I cannot tell you how many times at conferences that I'm invited to and get paid to go to. And she was admitted. Like, I just am like, I look at the list. I'm like, Another night of M&M's in the, you know, hotel room from the minibar. So I get that feeling. But then he said the best thing and he won the argument, in my opinion, because he said, 
you treat us this way, but you need us because you want to go to the number one liberal arts college in America. And one of the things you need to have is diversity to get your number one. I was like, he won the argument. Like Hmm. they do use these black kids. They know the admissions people absolutely know. You're right that they're admitting kids who are ferociously test-driven kids who have spent a billion hours, whether for cultural reasons, whether for the individual reason of the kid, for whatever, whether because of the advantages that they've had, just completely doing the math science thing all the time. And they know when they take that kid from that disadvantaged background, particularly an African-American kid, that they don't have a program that's the natural next step for him or her from that background Mm. to being a physician. And they know in their heart of hearts they're going to have a lot of science kids that come in as science kids and they come out as gender studies kids and different soft sciences that has a whole different life trajectory, whole different income trajectory, just a whole different profile. And so it, it all gets parodied, probably rightly so, as grievance studies. But I think they do have a, these kids do have a grievance. They just don't recognize exactly what it is because the admissions departments won't tell the truth. They won't say, we really want you. You're an incredible person. You have really achieved so much and your character is clearly better than most of these loser kids we let in all the time. We want you. You're a great person, but we should let you know you probably won't last in our science program. So you probably won't end up a doctor but we'll help you in lots of other ways. They know that's true, but they're not going to write that in the letter. Mm. And I think they have really, I think African-American students should be suing those places. Well, so, so then what should the policy be? I mean, what, what could Harvard, just take Harvard as the test case, because this is the one that is, has the spotlight shined on at the moment. What should Harvard's policy be with respect to affirmative action? I think that if that's their goal, and it's, a, it's an admirable goal to have at our, you know, Harvard is just like this one word around the world. People know Harvard University. And I think it's admirable for them to say that it is of great worth to society for, you know, all kinds of students coming here, not just the ones that have the perfect test scores and not just the ones who have wealthy parents. Therefore, we have to take apart our whole science program and do it differently. And it might not be the premier science program after we do that. But it will be a program that's ethically consistent with what we're doing, which is that we're taking in black kids and saying, you belong here 100 percent. Harvard's going to make your dreams come true. It's not going to make their dreams come true, but they won't be honest enough to say you have to come over the summer for a remedial program to get you started. They're not going to say that because that would seem racist. Mm. They're not going to ever change their science program because they want to be the number one science program in the country. But don't you think we... Someone has to produce the best scientists in any generation. So what? So maybe the, the the ground truth is there are certain fields where you are not going to be able to walk the path in that direction unless you have certain things in place by age fourteen, right? So maybe the maybe the problem is we we have to solve for the fourteen year olds' aspiration. So it's a problem with high schools that that a college like Harvard can't correct for, say. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm imagining that this is, could be true of some field. I don't know if it's in well, fact I, true of medicine. I think that, you know, Harvard needs to speak honestly to itself about what it's doing. And if it's admitting these students, which, you know, 
it's certainly great to walk on campus there and see it looking so different than it did 30 or 40 years ago, or maybe 40 years ago. But if they're going to do that, knowing that a kid says, this is my dream in life, and knowing who they're going to be up against, then I think they either need to say, well, we're going to be a different kind of science department. And, you know, I could imagine some like multiple intelligences person saying, you know, that test scores are horrible reflections and we should teach science in a whole different way or something like that. But I think right now they've, they've performed a grave disservice to the nation and to the kids by saying, you know, when a kid gets into Harvard, they don't know. I can tell you this for a fact because I've been in these meetings. They don't know that the admissions committee stopped for 45 minutes and talked about if that kid was going to make it at the college at all or if they'd be home at the end of first semester, let alone the fact that they want to be a doctor, you know? Right. right. And then they decide there's enough social support and the kid's strong enough and he's gone through enough things on his own that we're going to do it. And then he comes there and is understandably really confused and hurt and assuming racism when he finds out that that he's not in the same class as his white roommate is that wants to be a doctor. You know, I think Harvard hasn't answered hard questions. Yeah, it's such a complex issue because I think diversity on some level is an intrinsic good. It's easy to see how affirmative action seems to be the answer to a social problem. But I remember when I had Glenn Lowry on the podcast, Glenn is a um, an African-American economist at Brown who um, is just so sane on race and, you know, says the things that uh, it's often impossible for white people to say without an immediate charge of racism. But I mean, his, his point in, uh, in this area was that I mean, one problem with affirmative action is you, you take the case of, I mean, the, the example he used was getting black engineering students into MIT, say, right? So you're in the, the best, you know, what, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the, you know, the, the hardest, most selective engineering program, or, you know, one of three in the country. And the issue there is that even if you were in the 99th percentile in the country in, in you know, quantitative ability, you're now in a classroom right. where everyone's at the 99.9th level of quantitative ability. And so you are going to be at the bottom of the class just because of the selection mechanism that, that got you there. And psychologically, that sucks. And it, and it doubly sucks for, for a kid who has to worry that everyone perceives him as a, an affirmative action mm-hmm. case, right? I mean, it's just, it's just lousy for a person's self-esteem for understandable reasons. And from Glenn's point of view, it was completely unnecessary because an engineering program at, at, you know, at, at, like, you know, yeah. you, you, just go to, you just go down 10 rungs on right. the ladder, you know, a perfectly fine engineering program would not have produced this experience at all in, mm-hmm. in the student. And the dirty secret, you know, on Glenn's account is that many of these kids wind up washing out of the program. <laughs> That's you know, what I meant when I said that. they became gender studies majors. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it may just be that it's not, there may not be a solution at the college level. It may just, it may just propagate back to the inequalities and lack of opportunities. In, I mean, you're talking about inner city schools that are publicly funded that are, are inferior to other schools that kids are coming out of. Well, even. also, we just look at talent with kids in such a narrow way. I was at a, a school visit like eight or nine, ten years ago in Inglewood. It was a charter school. It was an all-black charter school. 
And they had me look at some English classes. Yeah, they're good classes. Kids are, you know, good. They're, their behavior was really excellent and their program was good. And then they're like, now, because you're a writer, we're going to take you to the creative writing elective. And I was like, oh, God, because, you know, kids' creative writing is usually horrible. But I was like, oh, great. I love it. These kids started reading their poems. There was a depth of talent in that room. I literally could not believe it. Hmm. The depth of talent of these young black poets was, I was just stunned. And I thought, if there's this much talent in the other five electives, you know, in the arts and the this and the that, and yet we're just holding these kids' feet to the fire on their test scores for who they're going to be and where they're going to go. You know, we look at, we still look at people in this very narrow way. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's right. But I do know that Harvard doesn't tell the truth about a lot of things. And one of the things it doesn't tell the truth about is it takes in underrepresented minorities, particularly African American kids, and they know they won't end up in the STEM fields that they think they're going to be getting a degree in. They know it. What else do people not understand about the college admissions process that you have seen as a counselor? Well, in the larger scale, as with everything in this country, immigration is part of it. We have 20th century solutions that we're trying to apply to 21st century problems. You know, this idea that a vast middle class should still really go to college away from home with a meal plan, even if there's seven great colleges, you know, commuting distance from your parents' house where, you know, just one more plate at the dinner table and you stay in your room. The idea that they should have that experience, that it's a really important foundational experience, you've really missed out if you didn't, and that you should have all this fun and meet all these people, and that's the way to do an education, that's not a 21st century answer. We're still stuck in that idea of that being the ideal, but it's going it's gonna collapse pretty soon. That's not the way anymore for middle class people to do college. You know, we need to be more on the European model where you know, unless you have oodles of money or unless you got an incredible grant package because you're such an incredible, incredible star somewhere or other, you should be, you know, European kids, they live at home, they go to school in driving distance from home and they treat it more like a job. They do their work all day long and then they come home and or, you know, go out with their friends, but they eat dinner at home. And that, you know, right now, room and board, that's 16 grand a year times four. You know, that's a lot of money that doesn't make sense for them to be spending. And that ends up in this kind of endless student loan debt that's completely unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think college will collapse into in, in 10 years? Do you think the Rich, landscape will wealthy kids will do what wealth, you know, there's, Yale's not going anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. the top 15%, you know, the wealthy kids and as ever much financial aid as there is, that's going to continue. But this whole vast, you know, every year they try to downplay it, but I would always get it as a college counselor. You get this printout, now I'm sure it's totally online, but all the places that still need kids, like it's at the very end of the school year, and this college and that college and the other college, forget about their yield or whatever, they don't, they need more kids. Can you get us a kid? At what tier? These are like third tier colleges or? or? Yeah, third and fourth. Yeah. I mean, we have, what do we have, 36? I can never remember how many colleges to give a four-year degree, but we have this huge number of colleges. We don't even have that many kids. That, that even are qualified or, or have the, you know, the, any kind of basic financing to do it. And the colleges are like, you've got to get some more kids in the dorm. You've got to help us out. You know, Harvard-Westlake wouldn't have kids for them, but maybe another public school would. Right, right. 
So you, as a counselor, you must have seen the most neurotic. I can only imagine what, what where you're catching parents and their kids in their in well, their stress. Well, these are wealthy parents. Yeah, but so, yeah, so you're getting like the most entitled, neurotic topspin to a fairly stressful moment in, in a in a young person's life. What was that like? How, how long? How long did you hold I that did, job? I had been an English teacher there for four years, and then I was did that for three years, and I was like, I gotta get out. I just gotta get out. It's hell because to these people, the difference between Yale and Northwestern, the, the sky and the earth. It is the sky and the earth. You would think they were trying to get a kidney transplant for their child. <laughs> they would really, if you even said something like. You know, we we have a tradition of Yale. We want to go to Yale. And if you're like, okay, that's great. We'll do that application. And, you know, what I like about Northwestern, they would just look at you if you said, you know, you know, what you're going to really like about not having two children is that you'll have an only child. And you can do more. They would literally act as though I was saying that their kid was going to die. I mean, right. that is what they would be like. And they would be speaking the most crass ways you can think of about money. They would say racist things. They would. They just couldn't bear the idea that their kid, that there's, they're in this social class where you just got to fight and fight and get the best of everything. And you've got to learn everything about the fanciest car and get that fancy car. And you've got to live in the right neighborhood. And you've got to have a kid at Yale, not mm. at Northwestern. What a stain on the family. What a you know, blighted future for the kid. Of course, by the end of it, the kid gets into Northwestern, doesn't get into Yale, and now the parents are, this is the God's honest truth, Sam, <laughs> now the parents are really pissed off that you don't promote Northwestern more, because right. everyone needs to know how hard it is to get into right. Northwestern, <laughs> and our friends need to know that it's a really top college, because right. I've met people who, who couldn't tell the difference between Northwestern and Northeastern, and right. that's really a problem for our kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. So what is it psychologically? Is it the scarcity it's that because they've changed you know the idea before was if you're a prep school kid and you've turned you've done well you did good you got good grades you didn't blot your copy book you didn't get caught like getting high like in the science lab or whatever you're going to go to a top college you're at a prep school that's prep school doesn't mean prep for public university it's an old term that meant, you know, the schools that you went to, and then you went to these effete East Coast schools. That's what they think they're buying. Right. And when they find out that they're not getting it, and that others in the class are getting it, and that they rightly assume that a lot of those people are working angles, and they don't know what those angles are, and they rightly assume that the school kind of knows what those angles are, and kind right. of like allowing... <laughs> well, let's, let's drill down on those <laughs> okay. right assumptions. What are the angles that uh, the school knows about? Well, it could be, you know, rich people know other rich people. That's been, as growing up as a middle-class kid, that has been a revelation to me ever since that job. And then my later career is that rich people know other rich people. They didn't just, like, they've come up in this rarefied small world. So somebody knows someone on the board. Hmm. Somebody knows someone with a lot of juice at the school, very up, very high at the at top. Somebody is obviously a person with a lot of money. They don't have a great institutional history of giving to educational places, so they're being tutored by the college about what will be expected of them as a hmm. giver. That's all going on, and admissions is talking to us about that. That propagates back to the high school. 
Well, I'm talking about a really, really top level of high school where, you know, that are probably just 50 in the country or something, yeah. but where it's like... But that, which, which Harvard-Westlake does have the reputation of just unambiguously being the best high school in Los Angeles. It's got to be one of the best in the country. It right? is. Yeah. yeah. So at that level, the colleges can't afford to piss us off because we're channeling the top kids around the country, you know, that they want their horse trading. And right. the more open we are with them, the more open they'll be with us. And the more we can kind of tr put a really top kid toward them, the more juice we'll have for somebody else. So it's a very relationship-built business that the counselors have to keep secret from the parents right? <laughs> because that would feel like they weren't getting their equal opportunity, which they're not. And so there's just a lot of like very explicit conversations that, hey, this is a multi however many millions are billionaire. But hmm, a development office has researched that family and they don't give to colleges. You know, they had two younger kids that went through. And so, and then I'm like, I don't know what to do about that. And they're like, oh, well, our development people are reaching out and they're kind of getting involved with them. So there's very explicit conversations going on and that so, are- So the, there's a conversation which would be a kind of quid pro quo where, listen, if we do let your kid in, we're expecting a donation of a certain size. Yes. And that's that becomes explicit. And and that actually gets channeled through you as the college no, counselor? No, you wouldn't or, know. Or, you would just be told when you're like endlessly going through your lists, she's getting in like she is. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a development case. Oh, okay, right, great. Okay. Keep going. Problem solved. Yeah. yeah. Right. So what percentage of people at a top school do you think had to find some angle of that sort to get in, and what percentage is just it's just just a, a meritocracy or a diversity quota that's sort of more through the front door. Hmm. They always talk about the drama of the unhooked kid, just a kid without any of those things. They're mm -hmm. not, they're not a an athlete. They're not the kid of a really wealthy. They're not the ki a legacy. They're not they're an underrepresented minority. Cherokee. Right. Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot are going to get in. I mean, let me put it to you this way: if you find at Harvard, a white kid whose dad's a doctor. He's not a working class kid because they really want working class kids now. Whose dad's a doctor and he's got not an athlete. He's got a lot under the hood. Right. He's got a lot under the hood. That's interesting. And it has it been, obviously my kids are not old enough for me to have thought about this yet, but my oldest daughter's 10 I mean, who knows if colleges will exist in 10 years. <laughs> It'll just be self-driving cars and, and implantable chips. Self-readable books. Yeah, yeah. But rumor has it that something's happened in in the last decade or so to internationalize the 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 marketing of all these colleges where you, you used to be in competition with just the domestic population. Now you're in competition with people from all over the world. And so it's, the chances of getting into a top college has, have gone way down. Is that... Oh what, yeah, I where, mean, where, just, where, was was there? Can you play? Can you date that change? When did that happen? Well, you will see that like thirty-five years ago, it would be a twenty percent admit rate to like a Harvard, and now it's a four percent. Mm. So yes, the idea of wanting to be very diverse in all senses. You but know, now, but now it's a four percent of a global yes, applicant pool. Exactly. Right. Yeah. What? When did it become global, or was it always? global, but just not as well marketed. Harvard has always been able to get whatever kid on the planet that Harvard wants to get because it's Harvard. I think it's kind of a tier down that you have or a couple of tiers down where you have 
as everybody says, the great export is American college education. You have a lot of people, particularly Chinese families, mm. that want American college educations that that are, you know, coming in and that that are helping to fund the bubble in a way. All right. So I, I only had, um, well, two topics, one of which probably can be pretty abbreviated, but you, you had a great piece on HR departments and how counterintuitive their their mandate is to many people. What should people understand about an HR department? 100% they are on the side of the best resolution for the company. And the minute that you come in there with any kind of complaint, their first job is to manage liability from the, for the company. Their first job is to prevent a lawsuit. Their first job is to make sure that you don't sue them about something that they didn't take care of. So you're you might come into that office where you have a casual relationship with the HR person and you talk about like your dental benefits and you talk about like these extra Disneyland tickets that are on sale for 30% off. Hmm. You have a close relationship, you think. And so you think you can go in and close the door and say, you know, I don't want to really do anything about this, but this happened or that happened. You need to know that you're automatically being slotted into a very carefully thought out process that you cannot retreat from and that's going to have probably some in the best case scenario is going to solve the problem and in the worst case scenario is going to have a a lot of other problems for you down the road because what they're trying to do is protect the company and if you're a woman and the guy who harassed you is below you at work they're going to get rid of him hmm. but if he's above you if he's a big earner if he's a big asset to the company in other ways they're probably going to try to protect him in some way or another. And they're not required by law to do anything to that guy. They are required to make sure you never get harassed. So they could just give him like some online training that he has to do or something like that. Right. Now, in the days of Me Too, it's the days of noisy exits. Companies really are interested in firing that guy very publicly right now because it shows they're on board with Me Too. But that's subsiding already. And if you're a man, this would be my recommendation. If you're a man and you're at work and suddenly you get this email from HR saying, we'd like to see you today, please. These are the times. I would grab my jacket and say to my colleagues, who wants Starbucks? I'm making a run. And get out of there and call an employment lawyer as fast as you can and say, I think I might be going to be, I don't know what to do now. What should I do? And get some advice. Even if you don't know what this is about? Usually HR is going to tell you what they want to see you about. You okay. know, HR is going to say, can you come up so we can talk about such and such? When right. it's like, well, we need to see you today. Right. You know, here's two times. If that doesn't work, we can meet you after the office closes. And if you have any sense that maybe you've had a flirtation or something, if you kind of in your mind are like, oh, God, this could be this other thing. Don't walk in there blind. Do not mm -hmm. do that because they're going to. They're, I've just sat through all their best practices. You're going to sit down and they're going to say, why do you think we've called you in here? Uh, because of me and Susie? Oh, what's going on with you and Susie? You know, mm. you're going to incriminate yourself. You're not allowed to bring a lawyer. It's work. It's not the public sector. And... Well, so if, if you're not allowed to bring a lawyer, why consult one? Well, because a lawyer is going to tell you, well, did you do it? Yeah. Okay, you're going to resign right now because you're not going to leave this job and get fired because mm. then you'll never, you know, once you're fired, they're not going to give you a recommendation. Right. You know, if you think you're guilty, we're going to get you out of there right now so that you are not trying to get your next job 
from a position of having been fired for sexual harassment, and mm. the only thing the old company will do is confirm dates of employment. You're not going to get another job that way. And what, back to our previous topic, what actually constitutes sexual harassment? What's, what's the lower bound of the category at this point? And do you think it's where it should be? Well, it's all set by the policies of the different companies. Young women have a very different, very, very, very different notion of what is a, a sexually harassing event in a workplace than older women do. Maybe that's great. Maybe it's great that young women are, have a zero tolerance policy. But, but when that same young woman is kind of flirtatious and fun in some ways, and then somebody is flirtatious back, I mean, there'll be, I've heard really minor things getting brought up. And I think that HR, if it's if it's a good HR department, kind of works through that and quietly talks to the guy. But there was a guy, just think if I can even tell this, but he was, yeah, he was in trouble because, got called into HR, because every time he stood up from his cubicle, he would smooth his shirt back into his pants. And mm. that was seen as a sexual gesture by two women. <laughs> well, I, I question his clothing choice somehow, right? but- but that's just, don't you yeah. see people? I yeah. see men doing that. Like they stand up and they're no, in a button-down shirt. Well, because yeah. you're in that shirt. Yeah. But Guys I, in a, a law firm, say, or a, a guy who's got his shirt tucked in. I, I have I have some of those <laughs> shirts, yeah. So then what happens with a, a claim like that? Probably he would just get counseled, but he'd be pretty humiliated. You know, it's it's a very it's a very strange world. And I think that, I think Jordan Peterson said the most insightful thing about this where somebody said to him, can men and women work together? And he said, we don't know. It's only been going yeah, on 50 he, years. He got crucified for that. I know he did. Yeah. And then he went, but it was a really good answer. Like, evidently, we can't. Evidently, the EEOC is saying 90% of women who have HR never even go and tell HR because they're so afraid of it. So we have no earthly idea of how often it goes on. And we just had a huge movement of women saying it happens to us constantly. So evidently, so far, we haven't figured it out. Yeah, I think what happened to Jordan. I mean, Jordan, then he went on about lipstick, and then that yeah, yeah, was just like yeah, yeah. Yeah, what, more what, deep what's, reading. What's the point of right wearing makeup in the yeah, workplace if, if went, you don't yeah. want sexual overtures? Yeah, yeah. The problem is, is that there's there are things that are true in evolutionary terms, biological terms, which don't give you any guidance for how to live among cultural norms in the present, right? right. Yeah, so like even if, even if it is in fact true to say that the origin of our preference for pouty red lips mm -hmm. over, you know, thin, right. wizened lips, <laughs> you, you can just spell it out in apish terms, hence the, the primacy uh, uh, that we place on looking young and, and wearing uh, cosmetics. Well, I wasn't agreeing with him on any of that, but I was really agreeing with the fact that the answer is supposed to be yes, of course. But also the answer is... Yes, of course, we can, we can work together. Yes, yeah. but obviously a whole movement is saying, we haven't figured it out. You know, we haven't figured it out. Right. Well, we, well clearly we haven't found an optimum that we, can, that we recognize as an optimum. I mean, one issue, and again, this is, this is a taboo point to make. If you're talking about an awkward, unattractive guy who a woman does not welcome the attention from... The line is in one place. Right, of course. If you're talking about Ryan Gosling, <laughs> right. the line is in another place. 
Like, right. oh my God, Ryan Flattery. thinks I'm pretty, yeah. right? Like he liked my sweater. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> but if, you, if you're talking about the spectrumy guy whose radar you don't want to be on as a woman, mm-hmm. there's no word out of his mouth that's going to seem desirable. How do you create a policy around that? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I, you know, I have some, I was with a group of women I know who are lawyers, they're really, really sharp, top lawyers. And everybody started talking about things that they'd gone through, harassment, starting out in firms or at law schools as professors. And it was really shocking to me, particularly in the academic space, what men had thought that they could do to these women. And so, which was a really bright line thing. And the other, but then the other problem with that kind of casual workspace is that there's different environments in different fields. Some fields have kind of a kibitzing environment, you know, creative fields or whatever. Yeah. And it's like asking people to keep all of that under wraps. Or like a, it's like, like a writer's room on a comedy, right? Where people are pitching jokes. By definition, these are going to be off color. You're going to, you're going to go past the line of what you could possibly use in the show. Mm-hmm. And sexual innuendo is going to be more or less a constant. And, uh, but yeah, you I'm know, sure th- I heard Amy Schumer had this joke. I thought it was a really funny joke, and I really laughed at it. But then I thought, well, so we're so she was. She's like, I was really drunk. I woke up, and some guy was going down on me. I had no idea who it was, but that man was a hero. <laughs> and I was like, that's very funny. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. Aren't we all supposed to be just indecision that? You're drunk. You're passed out. This guy should not yeah, be. This is a sexual so assault. So that yeah. everything is. Everything is on women's terms. If it's funny and great, it wasn't an assault. If they decide they didn't like it, it was an assault. And I think men rightly feel that that women really are are kind of exploiting these good laws and these good policies so that they can get ahead in certain ways or get what they want in certain ways and that you know, women are kind of sometimes parlaying all of this into mm. into an advantage. And I don't think men are wrong to think that. It's just, I don't have any answers, Sam. I just think it's yeah. a really messy, messy situation. Yeah, okay. Well, now that we've sorted all okay, that all out, and uh, you all know how to behave in the workplace and in <laughs> school and everywhere else, just one final okay. topic, the um, the presidential race. Well, I've really become convinced that Trump was going to win again because yeah. they're going to make the same. Mis- I don't think it's going to be the wokeness. They're going to make the same mistake Hillary made, which is that they will not say anything on immigration other than ways they're going to, in a positive way, make it better for undocumented people and for people who want to come in. And in that little group of swing states that, ma- that are going to make this election one way or another, and immigration on this level is very new to them, and they don't they and they just want to hear something, you know. Yeah, well, it seems to me the right answer on immigration is so obvious, and what is uh, it? It, it never gets articulated. I mean, one is we want a positive view of immigration, and cl- clearly there's you know it's a net benefit, and yet there are costs to it. I mean, not everyone wins with with immigration of any kind, right? We want, we have whatever it is, 12 million people currently here. Sending them back is is a non-starter for a ton of reasons, economic and ethical. Although Obama sent close to 2 million back. 
Right, but like the idea that we're going to round up 12 million people right, and send right. them back when Horrible. one, uh, whole sectors of the economy depend on them, and two, it would be obscene given just who these people are and how positively oriented they are to the country. If someone's a criminal, fine, we want to find them and send them back, but we have people here who are contributing to our society immensely. Right. So we want a path to citizenship and you know, perhaps just blanket amnesty is the answer there. But in addition to that, there is no argument for not having a defensible border, right? I mean, clearly we would but want to be- how are you going to defend it? Well, whatever, whatever it takes to, to know who is Here's coming the into the country. Here's the truth about the border, because I have really been there and I really know. Yeah. We don't know how to secure the border. Every, Clinton- Well, so then, then why not build Trump's wall? You know, the wall is a really good idea- if mankind hadn't invented the ladder 10,000 years ago, I mean, go on YouTube <laughs> well, and just check how many people come over on the ladders. You know, the wall is in some ways better than some of these other solutions. But the bottom line is all these things are 20th century solutions. You know, they want to have a Marshall Plan for the countries in the Northern Triangle. It's the 21st century. It's not just about Central America. The whole world is on the move. The whole Southern Hemisphere is trying to get to the Northern Hemisphere. The population of Africa is going to be grown by 1.5 billion people in just 20 years. We don't have an answer. Well, so, so, but that, that's the practical case. So presumably, if it were important enough, we could have a border that you couldn't just, a wall For you couldn't just jump years, over. 20 years, right? we've been trying, you know, Clinton tried to do it and couldn't do it. Bush tried to do it and couldn't do it. Obama tried to do it. They've all right. tried to do it. I don't, but, I don't but the know the way. The, but the problem on the left is any desire for a defensible border is treated as xenophobia or racism. There, there's a, an implicit open borders policy being argued for on the left right now, which is... Of course there is. And not only that, I mean, this is where I just, oh, I hate these people. So Elizabeth Warren is like, my whole question about human rights on the border is where were these people during Obama? Where were they? Because I didn't see them out in force when Obama's era was profound human rights violations to those 60,000 unaccompanied minors. Now Elizabeth Warren says, you know, uh, when I'm elected, I'm going to hold President Trump criminally responsible for everything that happened. Are you going to hold Obama criminally responsible too? Right. You know. That's the problem. With, so Trump is, on my view, basically a monster. I mean, mm -hmm. he's like, you know, there's almost nothing... I don't think we can survive him again. There's, there's almost nothing so uncharitable to be said about him that isn't basically true. But it really matters when you can find these kinds of instances of hypocrisy on the left. So, like, mm -hmm. so if Trump is doing something awful and Obama was doing the same awful thing, or if this awful thing started with Obama, mm -hmm. to not honestly... Talk about that mm -hmm. is, but even is disastrous. More, just to go into Pennsylvania and you have, you know, plenty of people, people of goodwill really dislike Trump and hate him as profoundly as we do. But their top issue is immigration. Their top issue is I don't want my schools to be packed. I don't want my schools to look like the California schools where everybody's going to private schools if they can possibly afford it. I'm nervous about too many immigrants. And you have one guy saying, I'm going to build a hall wall and keep them out. And you have everyone else saying nothing. Hillary said nothing. The base wouldn't let her say anything. She said nothing. And I think that's where she lost the election. And in, in this first Democratic debate, you had not only an implicit open borders policy being signed onto by everybody, you had 
everyone saying that anyone who successfully gets here gets free medical care. Right? Or, or commit, <laughs> right. like, all, you do, all you have to do is get into the country successfully and we will pay for your medical care for life, apparently. We, we can't even cover the medical care of everyone who's in the country as a citizen, right? right? If you had to roll the dice with a candidate now, who would you Oh, for the who Democrats? Yeah. Who's, who's it going to be or who would no, I who, like? who would you Who would you hope it might be? I had an editor who said that Mayor Pete is like, well, I won't say what he said, but it's like, I just love, like, he's the guy I would pick, even though he has no experience and he's just been a mayor, not particularly successful of a small town, but he just sort of, he speaks in a cadence and a language that I resonate with, you know, he seems like one of us, but, um, you know, Biden's going to get it and he's going to blow it. I mean, he's just. Do you think he'll, he'll actually get the nomination? I think he will. And he's. He's really I, I, good at whipping the vote. Like I he's, think he's going to blow it before. You think that so? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I just think the wheels are were never on this time around, and they're going to come off. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But I think immig- the hall election is going to come down to immigration. I think, and I think that person's going to be forced by the base, the Democratic base, to not say anything. And people in Pennsylvania and Michigan, they're going to like, hmm. You know, I hate Trump, but I really don't think the country can have an unlimited flow of low-wage workers and rebuild the middle class at the same time, because it can't, you know? And Bernie admitted it, like, as a proud daughter of a socialist, I can say, you can't have unions with unlimited workers. Cesar Chavez taught us that. You know, he was the hero of my childhood. I was always with my mom at some United Farm Workers event. Everybody, his pictures everywhere. He was a phenomenal man in every respect. But the union didn't work. In the 1980s, he was calling for deportations. And he went to Congress and said, you're bringing in all these workers from Mexico and they're breaking our strikes. The the growers didn't break the strike. Hmm. Immigration broke the strike. And, you know, you're not going to lift up the worker and the dignity of the worker through the only power a worker has is union organizing. You can't do that when Tyson Chicken is, you know, got, a guy's not, he does risks his whole life to get to the strawberry fields of the San Joaquin Valley. You're not going to say, well, you know, Saul Alinsky said we have to strike. So would you mind sitting it out for a few weeks? <laughs> like, no, he's going to pick those strawberries. So I, I don't think there's an answer to immigration. I really don't. But if the Democrats aren't willing to put a little bit of teeth in it, I think they'll lose it in those important states. Okay, well, we sorted it all out. Okay, all is covered. Okay, good. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's so great to finally get you on the podcast. What? It's so great to finally get you on the podcast. I know, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I hope I haven't said anything to get me canceled. But if I did, that's fine. I'm old and tired. I could be happily <laughs> be canceled. You're, you're, you're self-canceling. <laughs> exactly. It's like a it's like a suicide by cop. Right. Like I got to get out of this job. I'm going to Sam Harris's podcast. Right. right. <laughs> and say that women are exaggerating rape claims, and then I'll be done. Uh, well, if anyone listens to the entirety of what you said, uh, right. your your point was clear. So thank okay. you again. That's good, and um, that's good. If you find this podcast valuable. There are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes. 
as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.